welcome back to Curious Comedy, a podcast made to inform and entertain, to enjoy and wreck your brain. Oh, and our name? I'm Tom. I'm Jala. And without further ado, let's get into it. Great. So thanks, Tom. So this week we got uh, kind of a special episode because uh, opposed to the normal episode where we aim to discuss five subjects, this episode we will discuss uh, three subjects at length. And why? Ah, because it is something we have a personal opinion about. So starting us off, we have the justice conundrum. So um, <laughs> we have named the subject, um, the justice is an elite sport rent. Uh, yeah, time will decide if, <laughs> if it's indeed a rent. But uh, let's start off with uh, what happened. So uh, the CEO of Yumbo, one of the biggest uh, food chain players in the Benelux, was arrested for money laundering a few weeks ago. And just to clarify, the Benelux is Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, those three countries together. Indeed. So uh, yeah, normally we would let this slide, but uh, because because that despite being a little bit intruding, it is not really worth mentioning for an international audience. However, uh, for this one, I will make an exception because I feel this is something uh, not unusual. Mm-hmm. And let me take you with me. So in general, a lawyer uh, costs around 300 euros, right? Uh, and at that an price, hour. an hour, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's an <laughs> important distinction. Uh-huh. Um, but at that price point, you are guaranteed that you will not get the best, right? Because it's not like the most expensive lawyer. No, but you would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> you would hope so. And now we can all think of, and most of us even know a couple of situations or stories uh, where the situation or outcome was not really fair or it was poorly handled uh, and could therefore be disputed in court. Mm-hmm. Well, also knowing that our chances to win are high, but we didn't do it because the time, the effort, and especially the money wasn't worth the compensation and the justice, mm-hmm. right? So getting a lawyer is a big money game. And I question myself uh, to what degree companies could use lawyers to compete with their competitors, not on a product operations or strategy level, but on a legal level. In other words, to what extent can companies stretch the ladder of the law to legally defame competitors? Mm. And if you think about it, like how much does, does it cost to increase the revenue of a $5 billion company in comparison to legally grinding your biggest competitor into the ground, yeah. right? Mm. And it's like knowing that innovation could hurt your business, doesn't matter what industry you are mm. and then instead of being the best and fastest innovator you try to influence policies to legally withhold your competitors from innovating yeah and in practice we have seen this right so old companies have been able to lobby for decades to prevent fundamental energy efficiency mm. uh, improvement like nuclear power and um, and then we haven't even mentioned like the tobacco industry and its lobbying efforts in the medical field so i think we have seen a lot of situations in, in history mm. uh, where you could yeah you could argue um, um, yeah to what extent they have influenced uh, policies mm-hmm. uh, and because you see that like social lawyers as we as we name them uh, doesn't even exist here in the Netherlands an- anymore mm. and then yeah we have to, yeah, to assume and we know already that like the Netherlands is one of the highest like the end game of justice, yeah. where you would say, okay, this, so there you have not only that money determines the winners, but mm. justice, fairness will, yeah. will bring it. And yeah, um, so to bring back to the, to, the, to the Jumbo story, I was thinking, okay, if you would assume maybe uh, 
we can assume okay the guy was money was laundering money mm. uh, sure but when i read the article i was almost thinking okay could uh, ahold for example mm. be behind this operation right yeah um, and I, I mean even the the experiment the thought experiment thinking about this uh, uh makes me feel almost un uncomfortable mm. so my question for you would be like do you feel maybe in general that like a court or our justice system is about bringing justice do you think it's fair do you think that uh, when people go to court and want to dispute something mm. that it is uh let, let's say that the entry barriers aren't that high yeah okay so so two things uh i want to i want to comment on i'll i'll start with the with a little anecdote that i have about working in a grocery store chain myself and um, so when i was working at a, at a smaller grocery store chain that's quite uh quite popular in the N netherlands but except for that isn't really international um I was working at a, at a, as a butcher part-time. It was a part of my duties that I would get big hunks of meat, slice them into little slices, put them in packets, and people would enjoy those. And it was sell, sold on the idea of freshly cut meat, right? And in a way, it was. It's more, it's more freshly cut than if it came from the machine and was then transferred, right? So there was an actual value to it. Now, uh, the, our grocery store was basically the only one with the exception of uh, Ahold, which was sometimes doing it, but not uh, not consistently, um, that was allowed to do it or was doing it consistently. So uh, I quite enjoyed my job. I was doing it pretty well, but there was another uh, grocery store chain that wasn't cutting meat. It wasn't Ahold um, that was lobbying against the ability to cut meat in those stores because they couldn't. Uh, they argued that they couldn't abide by safety regulations and they couldn't pass all the all the checks. And because they lobbied against that and argued for that in court, they actually won and were able to stop us from producing that meat in the store, which just shows that even on small scale, there is battles happening uh, between grocery store chains and all different levels of uh, industries, of course, uh, to battle against the ability of making money. And it's a lot easier to get another store to stop doing something that's making them money to, uh, and then to adapt yourself and make the possibility that all your stores are suddenly going to have to cut meat to uh, keep up with the competition. So that's a great way to uh, articulate the point that you were making about, you know, it's easier to blackmail another than to innovate quickly yourself. And uh, if you want the re end result of that story, so we were forced to shut down and we weren't able to cut meat in our store anymore. So yeah. they won, which just shows that it is an effective strategy. Uh, and then secondly, uh, what your question was, pardon the quick anecdote. Uh, I like it. <laughs> uh, is do you think the law is easily accessible to the common man? And I mean, your first question or one of the first points you made is that the typical cost of a lawyer is around 300 euros an hour. I don't know about <laughs> most people, but I don't make that much money that I can spend a few hours uh, getting a lawyer. Uh, the best I can do is uh, call the lawyer helpline and get some uh, amateur rookie to perhaps give me some very basic legal advice. Of which I'm very appreciative, let that be known, but <laughs> it's not what you want if you want to build a case against something or argue your point uh, um, in a case of law or want some real legal advice if you're trying to build a case. So uh, I think the law is made, is meant to protect and to allow fairness and justice, but yeah, you, you can call it a rent indeed. I think it is an elite sport is the, the law especially in America, it's been, it's been made abundantly clear is that money buys justice in a sense, right? You can't 
Uh, some some evidence is is so uh, incredibly convincing that nothing will stop it. You can throw a million uh, dollars against it and it still holds true. But there is just a lot of cases where you can bury somebody in paperwork or you can dismiss the evidence or you can have a lawyer that is so much more uh, well-known or, or uh, experienced in the field that he will completely dominate the competition regardless of whether you're right. And I think that is that is a problem that is facing all of us today and why most people don't even think it's worth it to walk into a court of law to perhaps get something settled which they think they, you know, uh, feel like they, they are in the right. Because even I, if, if there are some a few, a few things in my life that I was like, oh, I could make a case out of this or, you know, I felt I've been done wrong or I should be able to argue my point, but it's not worth the effort and money to invest in it. So people that are continuing to uh, work against the law are continuing to get away with it because it's it's easier to <laughs> ask for forgiveness than it is for, to ask for permission. Yeah, yeah we had a discussion <laughs> about that. I don't like the conclusion. No, <laughs> no but it's a, it's a great point. Yeah. If you have anything to add to that, please do. <clears throat> No, uh, I, I, f I feel the same, but um, it makes me feel uncomfortable because mm -hmm. yeah, you could, you could. I know that this is how it almost. Uh, I know that this is how it works in America, but you would assume that uh, uh, even in the capitalistic society, not uh, everything uh, evolves around money, and mm -hmm. that you would say, okay, of course you use money to buy products, services, but like the. I think justice is, is, is like air quality. Mm -hmm. uh, it should be it should be there for everyone. Yeah. It should be accessible for everyone. Yeah. And the moment that you say, okay, if you have money, you can have so much better air quality, water quality, but also access to your to your lawyer, and so you can, uh, yeah, have better professionals at interpreting the law mm. and what that is what justice is about mm. making your case yeah, making your case based on how you interpret, interpret the, the law yeah. so the more professionals you have the better they are the better educated they are the more experience they have mm. the, the 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 higher the likelihood of uh, a case being decided in your favor right mm. um so i i would assume and i and I, I think that is our one of our biggest losses in the Netherlands. That the moment that there were like social, uh, yeah, not social warriors, but like social people that were uh, practicing law, but saying, mm. okay, it's 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 becoming too uh, too much about money. It's more it's a money game that we didn't uh, do anything about it. Mm. Uh, and I think like like a solution could be that the like the companies that are earning the most money mm. with cases we just say okay we would use five percent or ten percent of our revenues we will do that we will send that to a fund and that fund uh all big companies mm. uh will do that and we will use that fund to finance uh pro bono cases mm. with good causes yeah. that we know okay people shoot that that are defending uh, climate change are fighting emissions of for, for example shell yeah you know that you will lose that because shell may i mean last quarter shell may make more money than greenpeace will ever been able to collect a, 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 and spend on lawyers yeah. so there you go you will never win that and and this is the only i think way to to level the playing field a bit 
Yeah, no, I, I, it's a fair case, I think, indeed. Um, but then, of course, I, I take your point, and I think there's definitely some validity to that, but then you still miss out on the people, the, the, the common people that are uh, missing representation. And there, there is an old saying that, that both of us love, that uh, a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. Yeah. And, and even if you study up on the law, it's just not in your benefit to represent yourself uh, because there's always some things that you can overlook and you will always be held accountable for what you said anything you say can and will be held against you in a court of law yeah. right so you want the lawyer to speak for on your behalf but um, it just shows the quality of representation is severely diminished by uh, your ability to pay for one yeah and that is that is just really uh, criminal and the only way that you can get a lawyer assigned to you is in a criminal case if you're being uh, convicted of something and even then, <laughs> there is there is such a long waiting line in, in, in I, I assume it's in a lot of countries, but in the Netherlands as well, that there's hundreds, uh, thousands, I don't know ex the exact number, but a bunch of cases waiting to be taken. But there is just not enough lawyers willing or able to take those cases because they're in such high demand and the, the payout for a lawyer is, is so little that uh, it's not worth it for either party. Yeah. So that, that problem keeps piling up and we are in desperate need of a solution. Yeah, yeah. And um, you could go back to the essence in which um, then you would go even a step further and say, okay, if we go back to the essence, then we said, okay, what are rules? What, what, is, what, what are laws, right? Laws are just rules uh, to say, okay, this is the our playing field. Mm -hmm. Now, as a society, we have decided, okay, those rules are fair, and if everyone holds themselves to it, mm -hmm. um, then we have a kind of a fair playing field. And if you don't, then you get punished, right? Yeah. But I think what is, I mean, that is a great system. But what is wrong with it is that um, you if you just take this on face uh, face value there is no incentive for people to behave uh, to to deliver good behavior and why mm. is that so take so let's do a thought experiment we have a society now mm. we have 10 rules we have decided those are good rules mm. now i know that i can interpret some rules differently say okay you didn't Mm. You leave this, you left this, this gap, I can yeah, use there's this. there's a loophole here. There's a loophole and I will use this. I will use this and therefore I can uh, enrich myself. Let's put mm. it that way, in one way or another. Now, you and the society will say, hey, this is not fair. Mm. You have misused it or... Uh, Misconstrued it. Yeah, our rules are not fully up to date. Yeah. So we will introduce a new law, law number 11, to be introduced to our society. So what happens now is that you now uh, need to hold yourself to a new law mm. because I misused the, the existing laws. Mm. So if you take this to the extremes in the uh, like to the extremes, then you end in a situation where, and that is what you have right now, that you have hundreds of thousands of law which you are expected to know mm. one, then hold yourself <laughs> to it, and uh, like our high court will hold you accountable if you don't, yeah. because we expect that you know it. And that is the situation, you could say it's fair, but now every law that is, is like added to it, all good people 
need to hold themselves to it. Mm. And the bad people, they will find a mm. new way yeah. where, where with, with result that there needs to be introduced uh, law number 12 or yeah. 13. Exactly. And those people are also not punished for the time that they've been able to take advantage of that law until a new one is introduced. And everybody that hasn't taken advantage of that, that law before a new one has, has been introduced will suffer the consequences. So the person that's been, that is basically giving the bad example or, and making, uh, making use of it gets ahead while the others get punished for it. It's, it's, it's sick. sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so you have a situation where there's no incentive. Uh, you only have, so you, uh, you are a good person, then you need to hold yourself to it. And if you're a bad person, then you know for sure it's better to not hold yourself to it. Yeah. Because you will not get punished for not holding yourself to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's it, crazy. And, and, yeah, so, and, and then um, I think that is what, what is wrong. So what you should introduce in essence should be that when I, uh, when, we, when we have agreed upon the 10 rules, I find another way, a gap, loophole, name it what you want, doesn't matter. I, I, I do something that we haven't uh, discussed, haven't arranged then I should compensate all the people that now need to live with the extra rule. Mm. Then you have a fair situation because then my trade-off to uh, like go like beyond the laws, mm. uh, I have to take into account that I pay a price to it because now when, they, when you find out, I have to pay all the people uh, back yeah. and then you then you are not guaranteed to profit out of it mm. so then you have an incentive to say okay maybe i should hold myself to the loss and now you have a situation no you should not and that is exactly what is happening and that is why a lot of people especially rich people are not paying taxes yeah. because you can better not pay tax and that is what you say uh, ask for forgiveness not for permission yeah but you should ask for permission and yeah. you should do that by giving people an incentive not to ask for forgiveness. Because when yeah. you ask for forgiveness, you will pay a big price to such a degree that you say, okay, sorry, I will not do it. I will exactly. ask, I would rather ask for permission. Yeah. And then you have to, you have a, a change in your system, yeah, your a fundamental yeah, change. Your incentive structure is just uh, turned upside down. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, obviously it needs, you need to refine it and it needs to be applicable. But I think that's a great idea. Step in the right direction to be sure. Yeah, great. Yeah, we we can always start a political party, right? <laughs> yeah, that we can. That we can. <laughs> That's a good. That is that is great. Let us know if we have your vote. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is not a podcast. This is like a campaign, right? Mm. Like a pre-run. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. This is just to see how many people align with our views, and then we are going to build an audience, and then make an inter the first international political party. Great. So maybe as like <laughs> one of our first subjects to discuss as a political party is our next subject, mm. living in a tiny house. Exactly. Because we get the mansion, but they get the tiny house. But we will convince you of why. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. We got to set the tone, right? We got to set the tone. No, that's, that's true. No, so, but um, let's, talk, uh, let's talk a bit about uh, living in a tiny house. Mm. So uh, maybe uh, as an introduction, okay, why is it even relevant? Yeah. For people... I don't know what people around the world do not have this problem right now, but mm -hmm. I think uh, all over the place there is a, a shortage of housing. Yeah. Oh, uh, in Japan, they don't have this problem. They have too many houses. 
that, that oh, yeah really really yeah wow. <laughs> but that is a we can discuss that as a separate subject but sure. it's, it's quite interesting what is happening over there but um, yeah so especially at Netherlands right it's like one of the um, yeah m most populated area yeah. areas in the world and now yeah uh, we have an, an increasing demand of people that want to live here and we have uh, yeah no housing to put them in yeah no no really land right and yeah. um, so then we need to find some solutions and one of them could be to say okay live in a tiny house and why is mm -hmm. that we can all imagine that if you have a 100 square uh, house 100 then square feet house going back to 20 feet square mm -hmm. feet uh, would indeed lower <laughs> your living area by uh, a factor of five which uh, means that you can buy or build five more houses okay. we all agree, uh, uh, understand that but uh, I think why it is especially interesting in the Netherlands is not because only for that reason because that is it is applicable everywhere mm. but it's especially interesting because in the Netherlands you have uh, a, a high amount of elderly people mm. and what is happening is that those uh, elderly people are now living on their own sometimes with a partner and then uh, yeah, some of them will lose their partner along the way. Mm. And then they are living by themselves on their own uh, and most of them are lonely. Most of them are living in a house or an apartment that is too big. Mm. Um, so they pay too much for what they use, right? Uh, but like the big part is, is loneliness. Now, what you can do is say, okay, if you would offer those people now a tiny house mm -hmm. then not only can because they move to the tiny house that starters can go into the apartment of the elderly people and the houses so you have like a shift right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing is uh, as well that um, like the cost of taking care of elderly people is getting out of control and yeah. especially in the near future mm. and tiny houses could be especially I think a solution for that to say okay we are going to place elderly people in tiny houses that they can still have their autonomy, they can still live on their own, have their own place, but can, if they want to, also connect and socialize with other people, which mm. would like uh, take away the, the lonely part yeah. and would lower your cost of living. So you would have like an increasing uh, spending amount um, to spend in a month and then um, you could lower the cost of taking care because now you are saying okay instead of five homes divided over a city we will just say okay we'll pay, take a place and there we will build, build five or ten or twenty tiny houses with all elderly people and now we can send one person who is giving medical care yeah, or whatever caretaker. yeah and then the that person doesn't have to travel one or five kilometers to the first yeah. and ten kilometers to the other no he can just go to that place and then help 50 people there mm. so you can still give people the autonomy that is why they don't want to leave their home that is the most important reason we know mm -hmm. that so that you can still do but as well creating new li new like yeah living spaces for starters without having to build new ones yeah and i think i i i, I mean of of course it's similar an idea but I, uh, like to a nursing home um, but I do think there's there's some arguments for why this would work better. Indeed, so one of them is autonomy. Everybody gets to have their own space. Would they be so inclined to have it? I mean, there's plenty of uh, elderly people that do not need medical assistance, 
and would rather just have their have their own little area and not be bothered unless something is in dire need and that's when you have that one car caretaker at location who is able to respond right um and you have care on demand which is really important because now sometimes you will end on a on a sort of a um like a division of a of a hospital mm -hmm. and then those people are specialized in some some kind of taking care mm. and you will place like because you they will say okay you have you are sick in this way and therefore you are in this category mm. but that is a category and that is kind of broad right it's mm. not personalized what do you need what do you want and when do you need it and when do you want it yeah so it's the on demand part that is especially important. Yeah, no, I I, uh, I agree with you, and I think it's also that. So what what a nursing home uh, has an in detriment for for what I've been able to, uh, as far as I'm able to tell, is that one it's incredibly musty, but except for that, uh, <laughs> I know uh, the almost all the people except for the workers are elderly people and rarely get visitors. And the the thing you can do with a tiny house, I mean, this is of of course uh, all subjective, but. Uh, if, for example, you spend a lot of effort into making sure that everybody has their own tiny house, you could, for example, uh, make sure that you have some extra uh, room for some scenery or some floral or a floral arrangement or a little forestry area. And that would per perhaps incentivize more people to come there. Uh, younger people, for example, that want to live minimalistically that are saying, okay, well, if that means I have to pay 500 euros less for rent each month, I will live in a tiny house fine by me and if you're telling me i can also split my rent in half by taking care of the elderly people around me sign me up right yeah. that sounds like an ideal solution for a lot of people so i think it will create a more dynamic uh, environment where elderly people are able to uh, live amongst age groups other than their, themselves and i think they can appreciate that too because uh, uh, one thing that sucks about uh, getting old is that you also lose touch with newer generations yeah. and innovation. And this is one way of uh, preventing that, at least to a certain extent. I think, uh, you know, obviously you're going to get into ideals here and going to speculate a lot. But I do genuinely think it's a way of um, making sure that the, the people that, that are, are, you know, not able to uh, work in, in our society anymore still get to play a part in it and still get to uh, help make it, uh, make it uh, beautiful. And, and to, uh, to create a sense of community. Community, and, and yeah. exactly. Yeah, and I wanted to say that. The community feeling. And we have discussed that. It, mm. uh, no, it's a great point you're making. And I just wanted to add that because we had a kind of uh, a couple of discussions about that, that mm. especially like in the Randstad, uh, which is like the economic area of the Netherlands, if you would put yeah, it that so, way. Yeah, so the big, the big city. Yeah, then, then... City centers. Yeah, then you have this kind of a individualistic mindset. Yeah. And, 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 and that is like the opposite of the community feeling. Mm. Uh, and we, yeah, we have discussed many uh, of the examples and the consequences of not having that community and what the value of that community feeling would be. And I think you just described that very well. I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> and I think, but I think it's it's also working the other way around. So it's not all, only the elderly people that indeed want to be in touch with younger generations, mm. but I think that we will see that when the population of the elderly people increases, that uh, uh, the percentage will may maybe stay the same, but because the total population increased, that the amount of people of elderly people that want to uh, be 
be active, that want to work, that maybe mm. have a lot of skills and capabilities that yeah. maybe they feel like they will lose when they die. They want to give that yeah, to yeah. the next generation. Yeah, they, don't, they don't want to gatekeep the knowledge they've uh, accumulated over their entire lifetime. Exactly. So they don't want only to like uh, be inspired by the younger generations, but I think they also want to inspire the younger generations so the younger generations can and will if you or, or you need to be open for it of course yeah. but if you if you are open for it then it can inspire you to see okay this is how with my generation view i see the world and now can maybe alter that with a different more experienced view yeah which could really uh improve your way of thinking and, and also your quality of life because it could like um, mm. help you nuance find some uh, uh connection to maybe things that you normally cannot resonate with because no, now you can exactly. talk to people that uh we see the results of things and now you can talk with people that made these things where we just see the results so say so they can explain and tell you why it is why it is this way yeah no and that can make you more appreciative of the facts that things are how they are and not that you just take them for granted. Yeah, exactly. Take them for what they are. No, I, I, I did indeed. I agree, and I think yeah, just to add a little extra layer on top of that. So indeed, the the, the elder elder generation is able to uh, share their accrued knowledge to um, to younger generations. And I think there's also plenty of young people that are scared to talk to old people because they feel unapproachable or you feel like they don't want to be bothered, ha want to have their own little space. But if you create an environment where socialization is encouraged um, which you would uh, uh, love to do by creating a tiny house I mean a lot of thought has to go into that of course uh, but a tiny house community could also create an opportunity for younger generations for especially uh, for example kids to uh, get comfortable talking to to elderly people because as I said a lot of them are lonely but but don't feel approachable and mm -hmm. I, I've felt that myself as well I had a neighbor that lived upstairs from me that for years I would be scared to talk to just because I felt they that they had such a sense of authority because of their age that I didn't want to be a bother yeah but you're you you kind of uh, you you've mentioned that before as well you don't want to fill it in for them you yeah. don't want you don't want to to make any assumptions about what they think you just want to be open to it and I think if you can uh, instill that uh, motif into a tiny house community it could be revolutionary for society yeah Especially because, indeed, what you said, it's crazy that the, the most dense urban political areas where the most people live, I feel, are the least social areas, <laughs> which is a crazy idea. Yeah, because then you would assume that people will also get less social, Yeah, which is strange because they are the same people. Yeah, exactly. And you would think, indeed. But what you see indeed is that the, the person, the people are the same, but their behavior will just change. Yeah. So they will act differently when they are in a different area of the same country. Yeah, no, 100%. I agree with that. Okay. Um, anything to add or the... Yeah, maybe just... Do you want to get to pegging? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. No, but maybe maybe a few questions. Okay, uh, we, we, can, we can uh, discuss them shortly, right? So uh, would you ever live in a tiny house? Uh, yeah, I would. I definitely would. And where? Um, depends on the, the availability. I mean, no, but it, okay. But if, if, if we assume that the, the price would be the same, uh, and we assume that there is uh, also some thing that you can uh, rent or buy, 
Uh, then I would like to go to an area where um, where I could for, for for myself it would be I would like to be uh, going to a country where you know I could learn a lot as well and where I could uh, where my presence would do the most good and I'm reasonably proficient in English and studying to be a teacher of it so for me it would be great to for example go to a country for example somewhere in Africa or uh, perhaps perhaps one of the one of the Asian countries that uh, that uh, needs help you can do some volunteer work while also being a teacher I think that would be a great uh, great uh, uh, usage of my time that that would be that would be great and living in a tiny house rent is also a lot cheaper so I should be able to get by with very little and uh, do a lot that would be ideal okay great you okay. um yeah, but I think right right now I would still uh, want the tiny house, tiny house in the Netherlands. I think, and um, maybe in the near future or future, I would say uh, I would prefer to maybe um, because I I always thought that like making or creating big homes in in, in sort of a natural area would be kind of strange because I have a feeling like you are interfering with nature mm. but I but I think like you've got some uh, self-sustainable tiny houses that just generate uh, mm. a, uh, on the basis of solar and then have their own uh, water filtration system and, and stuff like that um, and then like all the materials used to build that tiny house are also sustainable and, and like um, environmental friendly and then I, I could see like how that how that would work. And that is something I would I would never I think buy a second home as a vacation or so. Mm. But I do think that I would buy or want a tiny house as sort of a vacation place, a sort yeah. of a almost like a my my, my really my home, right? Yeah. Because then you I think because of the tininess of a tiny house, you are also confronted with um functionality of, of stuff. Um and that would help you to dis disconnect from materialism. So, therefore, and I would always do it in like a, a really almost rural area where mm. I have like nothing uh, from the modern world around me. Yeah. Right. No, that that is also uh, an idea that I like to play with from time to time. <laughs> <laughs> we are good players, aren't we? Uh. Um. So could you, uh, as last, uh, lastly, could you even um, maybe find a reason not to live in a tiny house? Yeah, I, I, I've, I've mentioned this before and on the podcast, but uh, I have lived reasonably hum uh, 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 Jesus Christmas, quite humbly for uh, uh, for a, a greater part of my life, and I've also been a student. I live with housemates, so uh, especially to have experienced it, that would if I were to be very successful in the field, I think it would be great to, um, you know, have a have a big house for a while. But the more I think about it, the more I think, yeah, you don't need to have a giant giant house, and the, the value of it is is less than I like to think. So I would buy perhaps a house that would be that would be relatively big, uh, maybe two three bedrooms, something along those lines that. You know, I could uh, I could have the space, I could have all the room that I want, uh, and it, maybe uh, one one good reason would be if you have children, for example, yeah. and you want to have a lot of room yeah. for them. But I think um, there is a possibility to to have children in a tiny house, but you just need a lot of free space. You just need a big, you just need wide open 
areas, gardens, places where they can play and be themselves. I think if you have that, tiny house is very uh, reasonable. Um, but I don't know, I feel living extravagantly just for a little bit and then I can sell the house or I can rent it to other people. Uh, but just to get a bit, like a taste of the good stuff, right? Yeah. I think. Yeah, and then afterwards you can really appreciate if, uh, be really appreciative of the timeliness. Yeah, exactly. And I can also, uh, I can also be like, yeah, I had the chance to live big, but I decided I don't need all these. Uh, 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 that is, um, that is, that is true value. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like ego and humbleness mixed into one a delicious little cocktail. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you are a bartender. Oh my god. Okay, so uh, last but not least, the Begging. the strength and the resilience <laughs> of the dollar. <laughs> if this episodes get like a, a string or or a flag, a, a flag, then we know why. Uh, so uh, why is it even relevant? Um, yeah, we have inflation. Mm. Um, we see globalization, which just means that we see a world where things were really interconnected. It got Corona, uh, then you saw then you saw some disconnections, and now you are in a sort of a, a geopolitical area in which you have, of course, the U.S. China, you have Ukraine, Russia, you have Taiwan, uh, ch uh, China. You have a lot of mm. um, bilateral. Uh, arrangements and that are un under pressure yeah. let's put it that way and like the dollar had has always been like the currency the world currency mm. uh, and I thought it would be in light of uh, let's say inflation uh, about purchasing power about uh, changes in prices would be interesting to think okay uh, let's talk about little, little, let's talk a little bit about the basis, right? The world currency, and um, maybe if we understand that, then we can better understand all the things that uh, arrive from it. So, until uh, 1971, um, the dollar was packed to gold, mm. uh, which just meant that if you had a piece of paper, which we have right now, uh, was the same back then, but then you could use that uh, paper to go to to your bank, central bank, mm -hmm. and then they would redeem it for gold. Yeah, exactly. And then you know, okay, the, the, the value of this piece of paper is worth a dollar or ten or whatever, but that is maybe just because I believe it, because a lot of other people believe it, because we have trust in the system, mm. but yeah, trust is only there until it's until there's it's until no it isn't <laughs> exactly so then you say uh trust is not enough i want to have sort of an asset mm. uh, and gold has always been some or the element in which we as humans prescribe some value to right yeah. so from 1971 we decided so that the bread and wood system uh was over and that was introduced after world war ii mm. uh, as you could imagine um to really s stabilize economies and, and to, to go back on track to growth. Now, to grow, you need some stable currencies and uh, you could imagine. So, um, because the dollar was getting more and more of an international currency, there was more and more demand for it. And the more money you print, the more gold you need to have. Yeah. Because otherwise, people cannot redeem it. Yeah, exactly. So there was a point in which there was so much demand for the dollars mm. that people 
There wasn't uh, enough gold. There wasn't enough gold. Exactly. And even if there was, then the central banks in America weren't that happy about it. Because mm. what happened was that like, like in, in 1970, like 1960, there were a couple of instances in which, for example, France just said to the US, uh, I want to redeem a uh, billion dollars of a uh, billion dollars and I mm. want gold of it. And then <laughs> America had to send some ships with gold back to France. Yeah. But if at a certain point in time, too many countries would do that, yeah. then your currency would explode because then you had to admit, I don't have enough gold. Yeah. So they know that that would be a, uh, a real right. possibility. Exactly. So they, they decided to say, okay, you cannot redeem uh, your gold anymore. So in other words, your piece of paper is worthless. Your piece of paper exactly. and is just as much, uh, and the value is just as much as you prescribe to it. Exactly. Um, and that is what we call the free float. So for every currency in the world counts the same. And we just said, okay, for every dollar, you can get two euros. You can get one pound sterling. And that is free mm -hmm. float. And that will change every almost yeah. millisecond of a day. Yeah, the forex. The forex, the foreign, foreign exchange, exchange rates. Oh, exchange rates. Because you rate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. But let's not dive too deep into that. Um, the main point or the main takeaway about the free float system is that uh, it created speculation opportunities, mm. as you could imagine. Because yeah, the price could rise, sometimes a little bit, but sometimes really sharply, or decline. And if the rise or the decline would be almost irrational, mm -hmm which sometimes happens on markets, then you could like use that to say, okay, this is, this is unfair. You have uh, expected it too much to increase or decrease. Mm. I know that it will be around this. And so I can profit out of the differences. Yeah, sure. And that happened. So with more speculation opportunities, what happens, uh, happened is that there was more speculation, yeah. <laughs> as you could imagine. So that is just that. But what is really interesting uh, is the following. Because of, the, uh, because of this, uh, information about how the future will look like determines how the future will evolve. And that almost sounds like a really theoretical thing, but mm. let, me, let, me, let me bring it back to you. So what does that really mean? Financial markets are not following the real economy as it should. Mm -hmm. But financial markets determine how the real economy should function. Okay. And let me give you an, uh, an example, because that would make it more uh, tangible, right? Right. So let's take, for example, housing. Yeah. So the price of a house is predominantly based on interest rates, mm -hmm. which is the other way around, if you really think about it. It's quite kind of strange. Why? Because the price of a house should be based upon its let's say, its location, mm. uh, its quality of the building, size, the sustainable investments mm. in the house, the neighbors, energy label, <laughs> indeed, no, yeah, indeed, tangible factors, and so on. Exactly. And this is, in fact, the case. But because a lot of people are not able to buy a home all at once, mm. they take out a mortgage. Yeah. And now things get interesting. Why? A mortgage is a financial product. Mm -hmm. A house is an asset. Is an asset in the real economy. Mm. Okay. So a mortgage gives you the money to buy the home while you have a loan with the bank. 
most of the time. Mm. Now, because the likelihood of someone paying off his or her, her loan, including the interest due, depends mostly on the interest rates a mortgage taker has to pay. Mm -hmm. eh? Because it is the interest rate that generates returns for the bank. Yeah, exactly. What well, makes it worth uh, giving people their mortgage. Exactly. Now, they have learned, and this is what went wrong in uh, 08, uh, and with they I mean the banks, mm -hmm. that you can pull different mortgages together to realize the same returns for less risks. Or in other words, more profit. And this is what we call uh, securitization, which, which is just financial engineering, mm -hmm. which is making the best financial products, risk return wise, mm -hmm. And being active in this business, and, and by being active in this business, uh, you sell, let's say, the same uh, mortgages to potential home buyers. Mm -hmm. Then you pull these different mortgages together, and then you sell these collections of mortgages to investors. Mm -hmm. And pooling and selling these mortgages is risky business and is prohibited for most banks in Western society. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why shadow banks are so big. So if you ever heard about shadow banks, went to Google it, nah, you got uh, something right now. <laughs> uh, Keep listening. And you could ask yourself, okay, uh, but who, who is buying these packages consisting of uh, secura secura securitized uh, mortgages? Mm. And the answer is uh, wealthy individuals and institutions. Yeah. And why? Because it is one of the safest investments in the world while still generating a one to six percent annual return to give you a sense of idea how big that is had yeah, as compared to an eight percent return on the stock market mm -hmm. which is uh, considered risky so for a safe investment one to six percent return amazing yeah uh, and this is also the reason reason that the housing market is in such disarray at the moment Housing, and especially mortgages, are being made an asset class, which is possible due to the securitization. Mm -hmm. And every asset is worth more, the scarcer it becomes. Because if you think about it, we live in a safe country where there is a strong rule of law, low corruption, and a high percentage of population willing to take out a mortgage that takes at least a minimum of 15 years to pay back. Mm -hmm. And most, impo uh, most importantly, you have an absurd low amount of people defaulting on their mortgages. And, and defaulting just means you can't pay it. You can't pay it anymore. Yeah. You can't pay the interest rates, therefore you default on your loan. And then, if they do default, you as a seller of the mortgage, so mm -hmm. read the bank, uh, are contractually, contractually giving the collateral, mm -hmm. which is the home. And you can, uh, yeah, you can liquidate it, sell it in other words. Mm -hmm. And so you can immediately sell the, a new mortgage for the house as soon as someone defaults on the mortgage for exactly the same house. Yeah. So you can see that you earn money without yeah. having a real risk. Yeah, so all the interest payments up until the person that has taken out the mortgage and defaults are still owned by the bank. And because the person defaults, the property, the house will go back to the bank and they can instantly give it to somebody new to take out a market. Yeah. And so you're profiting by somebody's losses. Yeah, kind of. And uh, I, I must say that there is a little bit of nuance mm -hmm. um, in a sense that 
um, when you um, sell, yeah, how, you, how, how should you say it properly? Um, it's like a really tiny, tiny, tiny thing, but it is important because you cannot always, um, um, when I am the bank, I'm giving you a loan to buy, the, uh, to, so I'm giving you a mortgage, you have mm. now money to buy the home, mm. then I have contractually, I have the right when you are defaulting that I say to you, you have to sell the house that you are living in, mm -hmm. but because I'm telling you, you have to, and you have to do that in a certain time frame, you will never get the best price. Ah, okay. And so, if you have a loan with me for 200,000, now I'm telling you, you can pay, it doesn't matter how much interest, uh, we can just leave that for now, and now I'm telling you, you are defaulting, sell your home, because of the time pressure you're selling and you're ne never getting the 200,000, mm -hmm. so let's assume you're getting 180, then I need to get 200,000. You mm -hmm. just sold the house, now I got back 180, and mm -hmm. there remains still for you 20,000 to pay. Mm -hmm. So it is not that I'm selling the house and I'm as a bank taking uh, the difference. No, mm -hmm. I'm just giving you the loan and I want you to pay me back the loan and i don't mm. care if you pay in the end it with like the whole whole loan plus your interest rates mm. i prefer that because then i make money but if you don't then i will take all the interest payments mm. and i will make sure you still pay the loan back yeah exactly. and if you do that by your monthly payments or you do it by liquidating your home i don't care i'm getting the money i'm getting the money yeah. i just need to make sure that the two hundred thousand that i gave you you give back to me exactly plus your interest <laughs> plus my interest so that is that is what really happens. But maybe to to bring it all back because I can imagine that this is uh, yeah a lot to take a, in. a lot of to take in. But um, this will only work as long as people are able to pay the mortgages, mm. and that is what we are talking about. So because the moment they do they they don't, you will probably not find a new bow buyer for the home, and you should lower your price. Mm -hmm. And then slowly all home prices will come down and everyone realizes they pay too much. And that's when a home is underwater. Because then you have more debt to pay than your house is worth. Mm. Like the 200,000 I just, uh, like we just said, and then yeah. you selling it for, 100, for 180, then it means that your house is underwater for 20,000. Yeah. Because you have a debt that is higher than the value of your asset. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that is problematic. Mm. Um, so this is, okay, now, um, so when that happens, the bank will ask for money to bridge the gap, and if you don't, you default and you will lose your home. So that is your like your last chance, right? Mm -hmm. And this is also why so many families got disrupted in 2008, because they knew that the families would be kicked out of the house, mm -hmm. and there was nothing that they could do. Yeah. So the main takeaway from this whole story is not about how uh, securitization works but is about giving an example how mortgages mm. or financial products and their prices on financial markets determine how and what prices we pay in the real economy mm. for your house and so 
financial markets do not follow the real economy, mm-hmm. but they lead the real economy yeah. with all the consequences thereof, including financial bubbles. And that is like the beginning of the, mm. of the whole story that the price of your home should depend predominantly on the location, the yeah, quality. Yeah, yeah, the but what we factors. see, because of the whole story I just told you, how people make money, that it is not about that because it's about risk reward for the people that are oh, buying I, it. I get you. So and, and, and then you understand that it is the prices they are willing to pay to buy the mortgages mm. that will determine what mortgages banks will give and that will then be related to real factors as the location yeah. but that is the other way around how it should function ah, okay so uh, stop me if i'm wrong but as i understand it is uh, we have an idea of what it should be we make we make an educated guess based on a bunch of factors and th- make an assumption about what it's going to be based off of that we we draw our positions and we uh, we uh, we make a, a certain sum of money we ask a certain sum of money and in reality it can turn out that we were wrong or we shot up too high and the difference is suffered by the by the person who has taken out the mortgage yeah most of the time and but that is when you assume you could you could say that when uh, uh homes are fairly priced mm-hmm. you don't have a gap because yeah. the price you buy a home right now will be the price that you get when you sell it tomorrow. Yeah. But that only works when you assume that the price of a home keeps rising. Yeah. Which is the assumption all around the world. Mm. Like we just told you, look at Japan and they will tell you that is definitely not the case. No, but it, it also seems like a backwards idea that the price of your home would keep increasing. Why? Well, okay, I mean, you can argue two sides of it. One, one side would be, uh, you know, we're running out of materials, right? So uh, things will get more expensive. But the, the, other, uh, the other side of that is uh, technology keeps advancing so we can build houses for cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So, it will be, uh, so new houses will be able to be accommodated for a cheaper price, which means that your, uh, the relative value of your property will go down. Yeah, but then you assume that, uh, that you have unlimited space. I know, but that's why we have tiny houses. Yeah, no, no, but <laughs> like the, the, the main price you pay for a home is just the ground yeah, you're building upon. Yeah, I know, I hear, I hear and, what you're saying. And, and that is increasing the, because yeah. it's scarcer and scarcer. Yeah, no, and exactly. that is that, the main that's assumption. Not, that's not a factor I was taking into yeah. consideration, indeed. So it, it, it's, it's not the, the property itself, but it's the, the location and the, the land that you own. Yeah, that and you all get to, that you get to do with what whatever you want. Yeah, basically. And this, like you, I can, I mean, I can say and trade your home if mm. you would make it an asset. It's yours, and you would trade. And I, and I mean, in the end, everything is about what people are willing to pay, right? You can have a home that is really has a value of three hundred thousand euros, and I'm willing to pay you five. Mm. I mean, it could be the case, yeah. but. Um, the thing is that you would assume that um, they're, they're, they're in, in, in a competitive world um, there can't be such a big gap because the moment I'm willing to pay five um, for something that is worth three, you would assume that if I have perf- if I have a lot of information, mm-hmm. I have access to a lot of information, I would rather pay five for a home that is valued at five. Yeah. So. 
um, that is the assumption. But the thing is that we the, the the price of a home is still determined on the real factors. But like financial markets, like what I'm willing to pay for it is not based on not per se based on rational factors. Mm -hmm. I can just say I'm willing to pay 500,000 for your 300,000 home because it's your home and I just like you and the fact that you have lived there. Yeah. With, I, which I, you could say that's stupid, yeah, but that would happen. I mean, if you would wear a boxer mm -hmm. and I, I would, I, if I go to the toilet and then I uh, would, uh, okay, this is getting really <laughs> disgusting, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, really me, wondering where you were going. Yeah, no, that. let me give another example. But I'm not going to the toilet, fine. I'm just wearing a box. So you could imagine that that is worth less than what when Michael Jordan would wear it, right? Yeah, sure. uh, people are willing to pay a, a, a sick premium because he has worn it. So wow. there are a lot of irrational factors. But mm. the, the problem with things is that when people are willing to pay a price, it's based on rational, irrational factors. Yeah. But when you are selling things, then you know for sure that the price you are getting is only based upon the rational factors. Exactly. And, how, and the more you are paying for your irrational factors, mm. yeah, that is the risk you are taking because yeah. you, can, you can value that for 50,000, mm. but I, I, I'm yeah, maybe not. Subjective factors. Exactly, and that is what is happening. So the moment financial markets and their prices are determining the real economy, you almost get a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Because people are taking the prices determined on financial markets as given, so the rational and the irrational part, and assume that this is realistic. While in reality, there is an irrational part, like the boxer of Michael Jordan, which is subjective to the value that you ascribe to it. And so what you want is that people understand the true value of it based on real factors and that financial markets understand these trade-offs and quantify it. And therefore you want that financial markets follow the real economy and not the other way around. I make, I'm thinking how I'm going to, uh, to make this point. I, we, because we were talking about the resilience of the dollar uh, and I just wanted to make the point that um, because the dollar isn't packed anymore to gold, you could you could question yourself, okay, but where is the strength coming from? Mm. And uh, what I wanted to say, and that, that's why I make this whole story, is that the assets, the things we are talking about, so financial markets, real economy, what has it all to do with it? Now, like prices, most of the time in financial markets are quoted in dollars. Mm. So then you can see that again, the dollar is the base currency. and you got you have that so it is like the, the main asset the main currency in the financial world and then you have that since the 1970s so since the collapse of the golden standard that oil is quoted in us dollars mm. all around the world doesn't matter who sells it where and which means right. that everyone who is selling oil will receive dollars and everyone who is buying oil will have to pay in dollars and due to the system there is always a demand for dollars as long as there is a demand for oil which mm -hmm. there is because we we need energy and besides that this the oil is quoted in dollars a lot of people and countries also hold dollars because they see this again as the most uh, safe currency yeah. and that is why you see that almost any big company uh, big economy in the world like the chinese will hold a lot of government debt because then you have not the currency which is which is Mm. just a piece of paper but then you buy debt of the uh, american government 
and then you have kind of an asset. So you have mm. still exposure to the dollar while also holding an asset that pays you interest. Yeah. So you can leverage it. Exactly. Clever. Very clever. Okay. Well, I, uh, I actually I was wondering, do you uh, have any remaining advice for somebody willing to or looking to purchase a house or a property? Something to look out for now that you've given this information about the, the, the gap between real value and, uh, and uh, subjective value? Uh, yeah, uh, focus on the objective things and not on the subjective, I mm -hmm. would say. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a little bit of a sad and nerdy disclaimer, but I'm not a financial advisor. Uh, what <laughs> do I know? But um, right now, I would uh, I would say hold your cash. Mm. Hold your cash. Well, we're in a, in, a, in a tricky environment. A lot of things can happen. Mm. Um, yeah, so... I think I think this is the moment to have cash. Um, mm. Should we buy government debt? No, you <laughs> should not buy government debt. No, but to to give an advice, at least for a lot of people not knowing it. I mean, if you're struggling with money, think about it this way: if you have a thousand euros right now and your inflation is ten percent, that means that your purchasing power next year is nine hundred euros. That is what it is. If you hold the cash. The only thing that you can do right now is say, I invest that thousand in a company, which of, I think that will, will be able to deliver products and services in the near future. Mm. Take for example, a company like an Apple, a company like Tesla. Do you think that in the near future people will buy Teslas? Do you think that people will buy iPhones? If you believe that, then you could imagine that every that if you would invest that thousand euros in that company and that company is able to, to um, calculate the extra cost that they pay for the products, they can uh, expense that to their customers, mm -hmm. then the company is not paying for the inflation, the company is almost betting, benefiting from the um, inflation because your same iPhone that now would cost a thousand with 10% inflation, you could assume that because Apple has such strong uh, pricing power, mm -hmm. in other words, people will still buy the products, then they will just say, okay, everything was 10% more expensive. Mm -hmm. So the selling price of our iPhone will now be 1,100 uh, 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 euros. Mm. And now, if you would hold your 1,000 euros cash, you will next year have 900 euros. If you would use that 1,000 euros to invest in Apple, you will next year have an iPhone of 1,100 euros. Yeah. So then you went from 900 euros to 1,100. Yeah, exactly. All right, great. Well, I think uh, that was a fantastic uh, explanation. Um, do you have anything you want to mention before we close off? Uh, no, not really. I really like the, the episode. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, all the aspects of the of the real of the financial markets and real economy is uh, came across well, but. Uh I think you did a fantastic job. I mean, it was an incredibly tricky thing to try and explain, and yeah. 
you managed to at least 90% of it managed to convey to me. So I think, uh, I mean, I don't want to rupture people's eardrums, but otherwise I'd give you an applause. <laughs> <laughs> Love is in the air. No, that's great. Uh, no, I'm, uh, I'm fine. Um, do you want to discuss uh, something more? All right. Uh, I think that's, uh, that's our sign. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, we hope you enjoyed, of course. Um, this was Tom. I'm Jala. And uh, thank you so much for listening. And remember, stay curious. Bye. See ya.